Welcome to the Triage Method Podcast. It's me, Gary McGowan. I'm my co-host, as always, Mr. Patrick Trowell. Patty, how are you? I am absolutely splendid, Gary. Although I do have a bit of a blocked nose, so I sound a bit nasally. Uh, so I apologize in advance to our listeners. They have to listen to me all day. And it's all right. It's usually me, so we'll we'll allow. Well, yeah, you're you're like that about maybe thirty percent of the episodes. So. Yeah, me and my mom, we both have, we both can't breathe. So, I mean, c'est la vie. Anyway, Gary, what are we talking about today? Today we're talking about uh, heart disease. And uh, I like heart disease. I wouldn't like to have heart disease. I even had a dream last night that my grandfather died of heart disease. So God bless him. Hopefully he didn't. <laughs> but uh, yeah, I, I like heart disease. I think it's an interesting topic. I think it's a topic that's uh, of great relevance to the fitness industry because out of all the disease states, like maybe diabetes, but I think heart even disease. That, even that, it's, it's all related, cardiometabolic. Yeah. Exactly, yeah. Let's just say cardiometabolic disease, exercise, nutrition, lifestyle, it's probably the area that we can have the biggest impact. So as at personal... Least, at least on, on personal, yeah, on a personal basis, like I'm not going to prescribe drugs. I know you're a yeah. trainee doctor, so you know soon you'll be able to go here, big pharma, write me my check, and I'll be able to prescribe those drugs. But on an individual basis, the stuff that we can do, it's exercise, it's lifestyle, nutrition, et cetera. Yeah. And this is where we can really move the needle in terms of exercise and nutrition interventions for prevention, um, especially primary prevention early on in life. You know, if you're in your 20s now listening to this or you're in your 30s, unless you have like significant family history or very pronounced risk factors, you're probably at least maybe three plus decades away from when you would sustain a cardiovascular event if you did have um, budding cardiovascular disease. But those processes that set in motion those risks are occurring now. So if you have, you know, um, a cholesterol, let's say, that's within the normal range, maybe it's high normal, that's not going to kill you in the next 10, 20, 30 years but you're still developing very gradually plaques within your arteries that become more of a risk over time. It's the same thing with blood pressure. If you've got a slight elevation in your blood pressure, yeah, no big deal, but you compound that over multiple decades, it becomes more pronounced. Uh, and that's the same when it comes to inactivity. So if we're fitter earlier on in life, we're in a better position to go into later life and lose some of that fitness um, and also have a cardiovascular system that's... <laughs> Um, more resistant to any events that do occur and of course one that would hopefully have less events so overall exercise and nutrition very important for the prevention of cardiovascular disease but what we'd like to focus on in this episode is the role that exercise plays particularly in the prevention of heart disease and i'm going to say cardiovascular disease because there's other vascular components as well that are important um how it prevents or its role in prevention, but then we'll touch also on the role it plays in people who maybe have established cardiovascular disease already. And then we'll stop it there and come back to the topic for those who've maybe had a, a significant events already or want to undergo cardiac rehab. So that's the purpose of today. Yeah. And it's important to understand that this stuff is cumulative. You know, like people often think like, oh, it's, I just had heart disease or I had a, a heart attack or a stroke or whatever, an event later in my life. And they're like, oh, what was I doing in the last five years? What changed? When in reality, this stuff is building up across your life. 
like it it's it's cumulative you know it's like what are you doing right now that's what's influencing in 10 20 30 40 50 years you know like we've said it before but like there's uh atherosclerosis well there's signs of atherosclerosis i can't even speak atherosclerosis um in like your second decade of life you know so like in your teens so we need to get ahead of this because this is as we've previously discussed in the podcast one of the major killers of humans and the good or bad thing if you will um depending on how you look at it the good thing about this is that it is something that we can impact based on our lifestyle our exercise patterns our nutrition etc you know and nutrition does get quite a lot of airplay uh, or airtime i should say with to you know heart disease and stuff like that and you know people like to fucking wank each other off going like oh it's it's saturated fat we should focus on this or oh it's this it's it's carbohydrates it's insulin it's whatever like they they like to go down the rabbit hole right but i don't think many people would say that exercise is bad for your heart disease risk i pretty much everyone's in agreement that exercise is beneficial for heart disease reduction or cardiovascular disease reduction right so we kind of need to get into that we need to take that apart and go okay well what are we what does that actually mean like what are we talking about when we discuss that like what components of you know heart disease or what risk factors for heart disease or cardiovascular disease are being impacted by exercise and does the way we train like the type the modalities that we choose whether it's resistance training cardiovascular training etc does that actually influence the outcome like does that actually influence the different metrics that we're trying to improve uh, the different risk factors for cardiovascular disease you know um so gary where do we start with this like how does exercise impact on heart disease risk like where well like why what's it doing yeah so firstly when we think about exercise we should understand the the rough events that occur within the cardiovascular system because that does provide us with some reasons as to why we might be protected from cardiovascular risk in future. So exercise is effectively a state where we end up with hyperdynamic circulation, you could say, where we're very quickly pumping very high volumes of blood around the body. And that's in both directions. So we need to get blood out to our working muscles quickly um, in large volumes in order to oxygenate our muscles and allow us to keep exercising and then in the other direction, we need to take waste products away from the, the working muscles. For example, carbon dioxide, it's a metabolic byproduct. We need to bring back that back to the lungs as quickly as we can to excrete it, breathe it out, and then reoxygenate that blood again, bring it back to the heart and keep that cycle going. So that's going on throughout the process of exercise. During that time, we also have to maintain some basic levels of perfusion of other organs. For example, we can't just take all our blood away from our brain. We can't take all our blood away from other organs. We need to keep them perfused as well. So there's a lot of, you know, um, circulatory events that are taking place at all locations in the body, but heavily emphasized on skeletal muscle during um, exercise. Now, the heart has to do quite a bit in order to facilitate that. So it's going to have a massive increase in our heart rate that can go up to 180, 190, 200, sometimes even more beats per minute, which is very, very quickly. If you try to you know, tap out with your finger, even on a desk at 200 beats per minute, that's incredibly quick. And well, that's, just, that, like, that's more than three per second, you know, three per second. Exactly. 
and you're doing you're doing that tapping there on the desk and that you'll find that difficult to keep doing and even to do it on a consistent basis without you know getting tired and taking a break and going again that's very difficult but what's even more complicated in the heart is that we can't just have these small tiny contractions because they're not effective so your heart has every time has to open up fill and then close and pump that blood out every time and has to do that over and over and over again during exercise and as a result over time our heart muscles will begin to adapt so they get better at um extending out so we allow for that filling of the ventricles it's sort of like um the way i analyze or analogize it is like you know someone's doing a an rdl someone that's really well trained is really good at getting down deep into the range of motion, stretching their hamstrings, maintaining control and producing force effectively from that length and range position. Beginner will find that very difficult. And it's the same here with the heart, because what we're doing is we're taking the heart muscle, we're stretching it out to its end range, and then we've got this efficient contraction that goes all the way back through its full range of motion. So effectively what happens over time is your heart gets better at working effectively through the largest range of motion possible and this enables it then to get better at one filling and two contracting and emptying. And that's what allows us to get the maximum amount of blood out per beat. So we've got adaptations there in terms of the size of the cavities within the heart. So for example, your ventricular size, the ventricle, which is the chamber from which blood is pumped out, that will begin to increase in size. The muscle will increase in terms of its size and also its quality, which is very different from disease states where you get increases in muscle size. So overall, the heart is much better at filling and at contracting, but it doesn't stop at the level of just the heart's muscles either, because we've got this electrophysiological system within the heart, which makes the heart a particularly complex organ, because it's almost treated like an electrical system. And you've got specialists in cardiology that will work exclusively on electrophysiology and understanding the electric reg electrical regulation of that system and in athletes people who are very well trained we know that there are changes to the autonomic nervous system that occur within the heart and what that means is that generally athletes will display higher levels of parasympathetic or vagal tone which is your um rest and digest branch of your nervous system if you will which leads to reductions in resting heart rate and then lower levels of um, sympathetic tone, which is what would increase your heart rate and increase um, the, the rate at which the heart is beating. And that would occur during exercise. So that's an important part of the system. But over time, what ends up happening is athletes will have a lower resting heart rate, partially the result of the increase in the ability of the heart to get the blood out. So if I'm better at filling up my ventricles and emptying them again, I'm able to get more blood in, more blood out. And then that results in um, greater blood per beat, which means I don't need as many beats to maintain the same amount of blood throughout the system or the same cardiac output. So that combination of factors and the changes in the nervous system and the changes in the quality of the heart's beat allow us to have a lower resting heart rate um, as a result in athletes as well. So there's a few different things going on there within the heart itself. The other thing that's going on within the heart itself is related to the coronary arteries themselves. So the coronary arteries or the coronary circulation are the arteries to the, the muscles of the heart itself. So you think of the heart as this pump that's pumping blood to all the other organs, but it's all, it also needs its own blood supply. So that occurs via those coronary arteries. And that's why they become so important 
and you, why you'll hear people talk about coronary artery disease or coronary artery or um, coronary artery bypass grafts, because those coronary arteries, if they're not working, then the heart won't work. And that's when we end up with things like myocardial infection or heart attacks. So yeah, those yeah. coronary arteries, the way I always think of them as like they're the super highways. Exactly. Be kept clear, you know, like whatever about the little off road over here and, you know, the back country fucking road, like who cares about them? Right. Well, obviously we still care about them, you know, but if the super highways, if they're the ones that get clogged or they get fucked up, we're in a bad way. 100%. Yeah. Like if you end up with, let's say atherosclerosis in an artery in your leg, like, yeah, you, you could end up with a pulseless limb. You could end up even needing a foot amputation. That's awful. It's not a good situation, but that same thing happens in your heart and you're dead. Okay. So it's, it's, it's very, very important heart and brain, um, particularly when it comes to those types of things with clots, very, very important. Well, other, other organs too, but heart and brain, very important. Um, so they're the coronary arteries, but as we move beyond the heart, and this is why I say cardiovascular, because it is really important. Exercise has an potent effect on all of the other blood vessels in the body too. So I mentioned the legs there, for example, and, you know, along with heart disease itself, a disease within the heart as a result of atherosclerosis or the development of plaques over time, peripheral artery disease is also something that's on that kind of same causal pathway because you don't just have, it's not like your, you know, your lipoproteins or your cholesterol, if you will, it's not like that selects for the heart and just goes there. It goes everywhere else as well. So you can get atherosclerosis in the arteries in your legs, and that can result in early on what's referred to as intermittent claudication. And what that means is it's basically like the angina of the legs. So you'll hear, you might have heard of angina, which is chest pain that's often associated with exertion in people who have heart disease. And the same thing can occur in the legs. So you're not getting enough blood flow. And effectively, then what's happening is Someone might be just walking and they're experiencing the type of burning sensation that you might get as an athlete if you were doing like a high rep set of squats, let's say. So it's effectively the same phenomenon and it's just occurring at a much lower threshold now because we've got poor perfusion to those muscles. And over time, that can develop into more pronounced disease where people will have a complete lack of blood flow and sometimes no blood flow. And then that's where you end up with things like, for example, um, gangrene, gangrenous changes and amputations and that type of thing. So very important there as well. Now, the reason I bring that up with reference to exercise is because exercise is also going to be having a potent effect with each beat of the heart and in each increase in blood pressure on those um, blood vessels throughout the body. So we know that the blood vessels in terms of their function um, will be improved over time as well in response to exercise. So all of that is just an introduction to say that this is very, exercise is very much a whole body event that involves many different areas of the cardiovascular system, not just the heart, but also its nervous system regulation, its own arteries, the distal arteries and veins as well. And along with that, then the circulation between the heart and the brain and also the heart and the lungs and the heart and the other organs as well. So there's a hell of a lot going on and we can go now into breaking down some of the specific risk factors and how exercise might, might interact with those. Yeah. And just even further to that, I always like people to kind of keep a bigger picture in this. Well, first of all, 
you also have stuff like exercise does impact like people often think of it's just the cardiovascular system it's just the heart maybe they think of the lungs as well mm. but you have to remember like you were saying it is the whole vascular system like it's often said in a more negative context with uh, you know people in the more medical health sphere but like exercise does increase angiogenesis so it does increase like blood vessel formation let's just call it like that right so that can be really beneficial like if you just have this really really large vascularization of your lower body like there you think about that in terms of or just i say your lower body because we were talking about the lower body but just your body in general you know like you got that because you're an athlete you do a lot of exercise that's kind of a little bit beneficial if we're talking about heart disease risk because not only are you increasing the amount of roads to use the previous analogy that we have you're actually making those roads stronger better by continually continually using them you know but again zooming out of that we have to take all of this stuff in the bigger picture. We have to look at it with the, the bigger whole body in mind, you know, and like we were saying earlier on, it's not just the, you know, heart, you know, people talk about like, Oh, it's heart disease. Like you have to take in again, the circulatory system, right? Okay. That makes sense. You're pumping the blood around. We use that, but you also have to take in the pulmonary system because, you know, we have oxygen coming in. But again, people kind of intuitively think about that because they're like, oh, I have to breathe. I do a lot of exercise, my breath. I need to, you know, catch my breath when I'm exercising. But then we also have to take into account, okay, well, this is going to our muscles. The, the oxygen, you know, the blood is going to our muscles. But other stuff is also going to your muscles to perform that exercise in terms of like the metabolic stuff, you know, all of that stuff in terms of like glucose, you know, fats, amino acids, all that kind of stuff. So we start realizing that there's a huge amount of interplay. And then that also feeds into the liver as well, because there's different changes based on, you know, how we exercise and how we eat and all that kind of stuff. Um, so we can't just look at this in terms of, oh, it's just heart disease. We have to look at it in terms of the bigger picture. However, that doesn't really help when we're discussing it because you often have to talk about the the, the minute detail, the, the finer points to be able to then slot it into the bigger picture. But just going into this discussion, I want you to all be thinking, okay, this stuff fits into a bigger picture. It doesn't happen in isolation. Well, we're talking about stuff like, you know, maybe we're talking about something that's happening in the vascular system or something that's happening at the level of the heart or at the muscle. It's all happening together. It's all like the the phenotype, the if you want, you know, the phenotype that happens as a result or that occurs as a result of someone who exercises, like that is completely different than the phenotype of someone that doesn't exercise. So we have to actually think, okay, th there is a bigger picture here. So I just wanted to put that out there because I know people often get lost in the detail and they forget that there's stuff going on with the, the metabolic stuff. There's stuff that's going on with the, the you know, vascular stuff. There's stuff that's going on at the level of the heart. There's stuff that's going on at the level of the lungs. There's also stuff going on at the, the, the liver, for example. And there's multiple other stuff going on as well. Like we could get into like the kidneys and you know, different things and especially with blood pressure. Like there's, there's so much that is being impacted by exercise that it's very hard to cover absolutely everything. So if you take nothing from this episode after this, just realize that exercise is pretty much beneficial. I'm going to put it out there. It's pretty much beneficial for every risk factor for heart disease. It's, it's beneficial for a lot of risk factors for multiple diseases. You know, it's like one of those cornerstone or pillars, if you will, of health. Like your body is designed to move. 
right? And I know people get you know caught up on the word designed, but we could move before we could think, right? It's it's embedded. It's 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 pretty ancient. So get out there and move. Absolutely. And as a kind of a big picture point here, <clears throat> like the first question someone might have is, does exercise reduce heart disease? <laughs> and does it reduce heart disease mortality? And the answer to that is, is very clearly yes. So just as an introduction, like mechanisms aside, like we know that the volume of exercise that one does across their lifespan. So just the exercise itself, like that reduces cardiovascular disease and cardiovascular mortality. We touched on that a lot in the last episode. Um, in particular, we touched on, you know, things like someone's VO2 max, the, you know, very high levels of exercise and how that impacts health. And that's very much relevant cardiovascular disease. So overall, what we see is that if someone has a higher VO2 max, they have a lower risk of cardiovascular disease. If they do have cardiovascular disease and a high VO2 max, they have a lower risk of events and particularly um, mortality from those events. So regardless of where you are in that chain of totally healthy, some heart disease or previous events, the fitter you are, the better, to be honest. So that's the first point. And then in terms of the specific risk factors, it's very important to delve into some of these because, you know, sometimes people speak far more about the mechanism than they do the outcome. So they'll ask if exercising has an effect on blood lipids. And if it doesn't, then they think, okay, well, it's not benefit beneficial for cardiovascular disease, which is obviously short-sighted. So firstly, does exercise impact blood lipids? Now, the, the answer to this is yes, in that there's, there is an impact. But in terms of really moving the needle on things like reducing LDL cholesterol or ApoB concentration or um, other effects, there's not that much of an effect. We do see an increase in HDL cholesterol, a reduction in LDL cholesterol, and a reduction in triglycerides. So it does occur, but it's just not that significant. The decrease in um, triglycerides is probably a little bit more significant, and that makes sense because triglycerides, uh, triglyceride levels in the blood are very much related to what Paddy talked about with the metabolic component of this, um, very much related to diabetes, insulin resistance, etc. So we would expect triglycerides to be modified by the amount of exercise someone does. But overall, um, you wouldn't be really looking at you know, exercise as an intervention for reducing someone's risk with LDL cholesterol as your marker. So if someone came in to a doctor and they had an LDL cholesterol that was twice the normal range, exercise wouldn't be the intervention to lower that. It would lower cardiovascular disease risk for that person, but it wouldn't uh, lower that, that as a target itself. And someone might say then, oh, well, if exercise reduces risk, then why do you need to worry about LDL cholesterol? And the reason for this is because this is something that is going to increase risk, even in someone who's incredibly fit. And what is really interesting here is that it may even be the case that those most at risk with their high, with their blood lipid derangements actually benefit a little bit less from exercise in reducing their cardiovascular disease risk. And when you first say that, it kind of sounds a little bit counterintuitive because it's like, well, if they have this higher risk, why wouldn't they benefit more? And it's because it's very, it's on a very specific pathway. So that's kind of the way I think about it is like someone might have a, 
like let's say me or Paddy now, we have some general risk factors. You know, our LDL mightn't be the lowest in the world. Maybe we have a little bit more body fat than we'd like at the moment. Maybe we haven't been exercising, whatever it happens to be. Let's say there's just a few risk factors that make us slightly increased risk in multiple domains. Exercise is like a shotgun approach there where it's going to reduce risk um, and, you know, we're going to have decent outcomes there. But let's say I was a smoker and I was smoking 50 cigarettes a day and Patty had familial hypercholesterolemia. We both have a, a very large increase in cardiovascular disease risk, but through different pathways. And exercise might reduce my risk of cardiovascular disease, but it doesn't stop me smoking. An exercise might reduce Paddy's risk of cardiovascular disease, but it's not modifying his primary risk factor that gives him his elevated risk. So as a result, if you're one of those people who has extremely high LDL cholesterol or other risk factors that exercise isn't really moving the needle on, then you might need to pay more attention to addressing those risk factors along with exercising, of course. Um, so that's just a really important point there because I don't want, as much as I'm the biggest proponent of lifestyle, I don't want people coming away from this thinking exercise is the end of the road here. I don't need to take a statin. If my doctor tells me to, I can keep smoking. You know, <laughs> I don't think many people think that, but I know some people do. So blood lipids, there is, is an effect, but it's just not the most pronounced effect if we compare it to nutrition or pharmacological interventions. Anything to add there, Patty? No, not really. Again, like you said, I just wouldn't be using exercise as the intervention if I was like, oh, your cholesterol is 3.5, or sorry, I shouldn't say your cholesterol, your LDL fraction of the cholesterol is 3.5. If someone came to me like that, I wouldn't be like, yeah, right. So we need to increase aerobic training and we need to do some resistance training and that's going to treat that. Like, that's not the case. Okay, you might see benefits just by virtue, especially if someone has not been exercising, just by virtue of, you know, losing body fat and doing all these other things that play a, a causal or a part of a causal role in the increase, like the reason they have high LDL, but it's not the main intervention. And you could also make arguments for completely like uh and you see this all the time being like oh well exercise would actually be a negative in this situation for example like during exercise you might uh, metabolize leucine more right so people you know people are aware that leucine is a oh this is good you know leucine is good for muscle building you know it, it is one of those kind of we'll say branch chain amino acids so it does actually get oxidized it does get used as a fuel source for muscles during exercise that's why people often drink BCAAs, which you know, it's not really a, a great intervention. Um, but you can make an argument, you could go, okay, well, leucine is degraded into, or I should say metabolized into uh, HMB, right? And HMB, it actually plays a role in HMG-CoA, right? Now, HMG-CoA is then used for to make cholesterol in the cell. So if you're actually metabolizing all this leucine in the cell and you're like, you know, burning through it, you're actually making all these metabolic byproducts, you're, you're potentially you know, going to increase your cholesterol in the muscle, in the, in the cells. And as a result, your blood is going to have more cholesterol because, you know, it's actually, it doesn't need to get into the cell because the cell is sufficient. Like you can make all of these mechanistic arguments, but it actually doesn't matter at the end of the day, because what we're actually looking at is the end outcome. And the end outcome here is those exercise you know, drastically or sufficiently change your blood lipids. And the answer is no. Like Gary said, those triglycerides or those triacylglycerols, um, they're going to be impacted for sure, right? You can think of those the way I always think of those. I'm like, that's just basically fat in your bloodstream. 
but it's being transported around because your cells need fat, right? That's the way I kind of think of it. So of course, if your cells, your muscle cells here in this case, or even your lungs or your heart or whatever, they're using up this fat, this fuel source, of course, that's going to be impacted, all right? So we could say, yeah, exercise, good intervention for triacylglycerols, fantastic, right? But for everything else, yeah, I probably wouldn't be using it. We might see some changes in your HDL. Cool, that's, you know, that's a nice positive. But again, it wouldn't be the thing that I would use as a first-line intervention. Well, I would use exercise as a first-line intervention for other reasons. But if you came to me and you had everything else that we're going to talk about was tip-top, perfect, and you're like, right, the one thing here that's out of whack, that, you know, is it's not where it should be in terms of what we think is a, a healthy, you know, phenotype. Um, if you're like, my LDL is just really high. Like, I wouldn't be using exercise as the main intervention there, you know? Completely agree. Um, and I'm, the, I'm just on, as a side note with reference to atherosclerosis <laughs> again, you know, there, there is this signal that you see with people who do very high volumes of exercise, especially endurance athletes, where sometimes they'll have an increase in coronary artery calcification. So this is basically um, a means by which you can look at the uh, coronary arteries and quantify the amount of uh, calcium that's visible in the coronary arteries. And this is normally a negative prognostic factor that if you see it, you know, you're like, all right, this person, we, we need to consider the, that they're maybe at higher risk. But in the case of exercise, it seems like um, in endurance athletes, at least, that these calcified plaques might actually be an adaptation to the exercise process. And we know that these calcified plaques are generally more stable and pose less of a risk than softer or non-calcified mixed plaques. They're lower risk of rupture, which makes sense because if something's calcified, it's you don't think of that as being like really loose and soft and ready to rupture. Um, so that is just another nuance here that even downstream on the atherosclerotic risk pathway, there might be changes to the plaque itself as a result of exercise that are potentially beneficial, or at least if identified, mightn't carry the same risk as someone who doesn't exercise. So um, that's just something to be aware of. It's not, I'm not necessarily posing this as a, a key outcome of exercise that's reducing your risk, but rather that it's something that's different between athletes and non-athletes in terms of established plaques. So it's more of a side note than a, a key mechanism here. Yeah, now, it, is, it is important to understand because as well, like you will see individuals discussing like, oh, I got a, a CT scan. That's the one they do, isn't it? To get your yeah, yeah. calcium score. So it'd be like, oh, I got a CT scan and it said I had more calcium. And a lot of people will suggest that, oh, well, if you have more calcium, that means you're further along in the heart disease process because you have so many of these plaques or so much of this plaque that some of it's being calcified you know it's it's been there for so long that it's it's being calcified so so people would suggest that that is a you know uh, a negative a very a very big negative because it would suggest in a normal person that doesn't exercise like okay well you've had these for so long that some of these are basically calcified right and the way i always think of calcification i'm like it basically is got scaffolding and it's you know it's not even scaffolding i should say it's got like a an established facade you know it's like this is built up it's like the the outside of like the greek pillars or whatever you know it's like it, it's 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 well mortared in or whatever right um so in a normal population if you had a higher calcium score 
you know you're like oh fuck this is this is this is pathogenic i'm further along in the heart disease process something really needs to be done however if you're an athlete you might actually get a higher calcium score but that doesn't actually necessarily correlate with further or i shouldn't say that it doesn't necessarily correlate with being further along in the atherosclerotic process you know so it is important to understand and like people are aware of this kind of stuff in you know certain uh other you know medical tests and stuff like people say like oh if my liver enzymes are elevated my creatinine is elevated you know i oh actually i resistance train and i you know take creatine so that's not a necessarily an issue right it's similar here in terms of having more calcified plaques isn't necessarily an issue. It doesn't mean that you're further along in the atherosclerotic process. And it may potentially be an actual like positive adaptation here in terms of it's actually sealing in those plaques. It's actually creating a, a more stable environment. And like you said, they're not going to like break off and mm. cause a, a blockage somewhere else. Yeah, and I think I'd, I'd really like to see more research on that over time in terms of especially people who, you know, established plaques, like is is exercise having a pronounced effect on the quality of those plaques over time? Because it is interesting and it's something you see with the use of statins as well, um, that sometimes in response to statins, you, like you can increase calcification of the plaques, but the plaques end up being more stable as a result. So basically the point here is that when you're interpreting these types of tests, it, it, you need to know the full context. You know, is this someone an athlete? Is this someone on medication, etc.? It's not enough to just say a higher coronary artery calcium equals worse 100% of the time because it's, it's just a bit more nuanced. Um, so yeah, that's that. Now, another really, really big player here is blood pressure. And this is one of the areas that exercises that I'm probably most enthusiastic about because like from the available evidence, like exercise in many cases can have similar or better outcomes in terms of blood pressure reduction than um, drugs, which is pretty rare that that would occur um, in, in many targets of physiology. Like the vast majority of the time we end up saying, yeah, exercise and nutrition could help, but it's not going to have the same effect as drugs. You know, even when we talk about um, reductions in cholesterol, if someone has really high cholesterol, yeah, you, you, you can improve your diet, you can eat more fiber, you can reduce saturated fat, but it's very, very rare to see the extent of changes that would be achieved through um, aggressive drug therapy, you know. Um, but with blood pressure, it seems like at least some of the time, and there are, there's definitely variations in response, that people can have very pronounced decreases in blood pressure. So in response to either cardio or resistance training, you can get reductions in blood pressure that absolutely rival um, those of drugs. So you can get, you know, up to 10 plus points reduction in your systolic blood pressure. So if you had 140 beats per minute, let's say, uh, or not 140 beats per minute, 140 millimeters of mercury for your systolic blood pressure, you could expect that re to reduce by 130 or so. Um, if you are to 130 or so, if you were to start an exercise program now, the thing is, like some people will experience more, some people will experience less. It depends on if you had already exercised, obviously. If you already had the adaptations and you've, you're hypertensive, well, you can't just keep exercising more, unfortunately. Um, sometimes that helps, but not all the time. Um, but overall, exercise does seem to reduce blood pressure. And the interesting thing is that it's both cardio or endurance training and resistance training, because classically, 
endurance training would be thought of as the intervention that reduces blood pressure. And it would be thought that, oh, well, resistance training, that increases blood pressure drastically during the activity. And it's kind of thought then that, oh, well, it probably doesn't reduce blood pressure over time, but it seems like it does. The best evidence that we have these days suggests that resistance training is equal and even sometimes better at reducing blood pressure. So I would just say very generally, exercise reduces blood pressure and exercise reduces blood pressure to extents similar to those of um, medications. Now that depends on the cause of your hypertension, your high blood pressure, of course. And the impact is going to be um, greater if you already have high blood pressure. So for example, if, if you have blood pressure 125 systolic, like you're not gonna get the same reduction as if you were 150 systolic. So there's more of a reduction there, um, more reduction potential there and more reduction that takes place as a result. So it's actually quite a simple recommendation, like exercise in accordance with the guidelines, everything we've discussed so many times uh, to reduce your blood pressure. And uh, yeah, that, that's pretty much it. I, I suppose I should mention that like the reason blood pressure is important is because like blood pressure is a very significant contributor to basically all types of cardiovascular disease and vascular disease and also cerebrovascular disease when we talk about stroke. So if you've got very high blood pressure, what that does is it forces your heart to constantly work against this very high pressure. And this is different to just the intermittent um, beneficial effects of on the heart that occur if you have a, if you are exercising because with blood pressure, it's this constant resistance and we end up with pathological changes in the heart muscle and you can end up with things like heart failure, increase your result of or your risk of um, having a heart attack and also all the other types of cardiovascular disease and cerebrovascular disease that we mentioned. So yeah, blood pressure, super important. Yeah, like the way I always think of it, I'm like, again, these are just pipes around yeah. your system. If you just kept increasing and increasing the the pressure in those pipes like there's connections there's branching off points like there's potential there for something to you know negatively happen <laughs> or i shouldn't say negatively happen happen that is negative right so we obviously don't want super high levels of blood pressure obviously we don't want super low levels as well but that's you know less of a risk factor for cardiovascular disease that we're talking about here and the way i often think about it is again exercise just brings you into that normal range that's the what exercise does so obviously if you're far out of that range it's going to bring you back down closer to that healthy range that normal range that people are within you know um we actually didn't touch it touch on it a second ago but in terms of the calcification of the plaques is it blood pressure that's then helping to calcify them or is it more so the blood volume the amount of blood volume that's going through because these are kind of an interplay here like you can imagine if you have a higher blood pressure right that has different changes and different demands on the actual tissue of the the cardiovascular system then also if we have high amounts of you know high volumes of blood going through these different cardiovascular tissues like that obviously induces changes as well so what's going on there yeah so the way i think of it is kind of I think of it in terms of the, the hemodynamic stress, if you will. So the stress of all the blood flow. And the easiest way to understand this is if you've ever been on the, down a water slide, when you go down a water slide, you know, and you're just generally, you know, flying away down the straight, there's not really any like friction or big impact. You're just flowing down 
very smoothly. Then you hit a sharp corner. And what you'll often see on those sharp corners where people impact the wall and have to turn really quickly is oh, that the paint... What, what water slides are you going on? <laughs> aggressive ones, the tubes, like, you know, very often on those types, or, or you could even think of it as a road or that corner of a river where there's a meander, etc. Anywhere where you have like flow that suddenly has to quickly change direction, you're going to have over time wearing down of that corner. So you might see the paint on the water slide is more worn in that area. Or you might see that um, a certain part of a road that's been consistently driven on where someone has been turning, that that's more worn or the part of your tire or the edge of the river, whatever. Anywhere where there's that change in direction of flow, we see more wearing down. Of course, a water slide is not a biological system. A human body is a biological system, and that includes the walls of your arteries. So your arteries don't just wear down and burst over time. That'd be a disaster. So instead, what they do is they ad adapt to the stresses that are present. So if you've got um, you know, this very high flow that's occurring in your arteries, uh, then that leads to adaptations over time. And one of those adaptations as a result of the very high flow is likely uh, that calcification. It seems like that occurs mostly at those kind of turns and branching points in the vascular tree. But again, this is actually a relatively new line of research the last kind of five years or so with, uh, well, a little bit longer, but five years or so that's been kind of observed in endurance athletes. So it is something that still, you know, needs to be identified further, but that's, that's kind of my understanding of it at the moment. And what if we uh, turn the pressure up on the uh, water slide? We just put a lot of high pressure water through the system. Yeah, you keep doing that. And that's when you end up with a hemorrhagic stroke. That's why blood pressure is such a, a disaster. Um, very high blood pressure is, is the, the largest risk factor really for a hemorrhagic stroke. And that's what you see in populations that have extremely high salt intakes. They have big increases in blood pressure as a result and big increases in hemorrhagic stroke, which means that you know, if you've got an embolic stroke, what that means is that you've got, let's say, a clot or a thrombus, um, some sort of clot, or you can think of it like a, a ball of something. It could be air, it could be plaque, it could be um, uh, part of a tumor even, it could be a, 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 just a plain old blood clot. Anything that dislodges within the, the uh, blood vessels, it's going to clot the narrowest point. So your carotids, carotid arteries in the neck they're nice and big so it won't stop there it'll keep going up and it'll get to one of these small blood vessels in the brain and it'll clog it and then you get an, isch an ischemic stroke as a result so you've got an area of the brain that isn't getting blood flow because the pipe is blocked when you've got very high blood pressure um you get an increased risk of hemorrhagic stroke which means that you bleed out so you've got this super high pressure on a weakened um blood vessel in the brain and eventually it just gives way because it didn't have the capacity to adapt to that high level of pressure, and then you bleed out into your brain. So that's when you experience those types of bleeds uh, within the brain, sometimes other organs as well. But uh, that's that's really where blood, blood pressure starts to become excessive. You know, it's fine during exercise when it's short-lived, it's physiological, but long-term increases chronically of blood pressure that are constantly there, that's when it becomes pathological because the, we simply can't adapt to those stressors. Yeah, and this actually, it is actually one to discuss in the next episode, but since we're talking about it here, we'll actually just bring it up. Like you said that resistance training increases blood pressure. So there's increases in blood pressure during resistance training. And a lot of people have experienced this. Like we've had clients before who've had like exertion headaches for one, you know, that that's 
that's something that happens as a result of well, potentially happens as a result of those high levels of blood pressure and that exertion. You also see this like people going fucking red in the face. They're really pushing hard on especially stuff like a, a leg press, for example, or an overhead press or, you know, they're doing stuff like a really hard Valsalva maneuver, like they're really bracing down hard. They're pushing into their belt, for example, stuff like that. Right. And they'll have these high increases in blood pressure. Is that a bad thing if we have had a previous uh, event, like a potentially a stroke or we're aware now, like we've you know gone for our yearly checkup or whatever it is. And we're like, oh, the doctor is like, you actually have heart disease risk. You have X, Y, Z going on. Should we just avoid exercise then? Because, oh, well, I don't want to have a stroke as a result of doing a, a few sets of a leg press. You know, what's the story there? The vast majority of cases, no, it's not much of a concern. But the problem is there are there are some conditions where it would pose a risk. For example, if you have an identified aneurysm in an artery that is weak, that is a, a weak link in the chain, then that's something that could you know be of higher risk of rupturing during something like exercise. So there's going to be a non-zero risk. Like there are case studies of people having aortic dissections where you basically split the wall in your aorta during resistance training or during heavy lifting um but that can occur lifting a box you know um it, it so it does occur there, there is a risk there and and that even for me or you there's a non-zero risk it could take place i'm but, built, different. <laughs> built different man but in general um the reduction risk in someone even with cardiovascular disease like let's say they've got atherosclerosis or they've had a previous event and they've gone through cardiac rehab you know once you're building back to normal tolerance like it is safe to lift weights again but there are definitely you know exceptions and some people who would have identified aneurysms or have previous aortic aneurysms etc but like there are things you'll be working with a doctor on they're very specialized considerations they're not things that you know we're going to be advising on at all yeah, and we'll talk about it a little bit further in the next episode because mm-hmm. it obviously plays a role in terms of whatever you need to do. Um, so cool, right? Graded exposure, slow and steady. Yes. If you've never done exercise and you have identifiable risk factors like Gary noted, ease into training. I'll just go in, bro, I used to squat fucking, I don't know, 200 kilos back in the day. I'm just going to go in, load up a load and just brace like fuck and get super high levels of blood pressure transiently which you know she's beneficial in a healthy population you know maybe that wouldn't be the the protocol that i would do i would ease into training but anyway next gary what other adaptations are or is exercise doing that is beneficial for heart disease risk yeah so other things would be resting heart rate so resting heart rate naturally um it is reduced in people who have high levels of fitness and who exercise a lot. And most people are aware of that. It's one of the things that people notice early on in an exercise program is that their resting heart rate is lower. And it's one of the things we talk about all the time. You know, people will say, talk about endurance athletes who have resting heart rates in the forties or in the thirties, even sometimes. And that does occur. And normally, like, let's say someone was 70 years of age and they've never exercised in their life and they're in the hospital and they're sick and you go in and you see their resting heart rate is now 38 that'd be potentially dangerous in that person because they're bradycardic which means you have a slow heart rate but 
it's not the result of fitness adaptations. It's the result maybe of illness or an arrhythmia within the heart or a structural heart disease problem. And what's likely happening in that case is because the heart isn't that strong in that person, they've got a lower heart rate. And what they've got going on is they're not getting enough perfusion now, enough blood flow to their organs because their heart isn't functioning well. And now they've got less beats. So they've got a reduction in cardiac output. That's very different to someone who's actually fit. So let's take me, for example, I glanced at my watch a minute ago, my heart rate's low 40s. And I'm sitting here, I seem to be perfectly fine. Um, my brain seems to be getting enough blood. I think I'm speaking clearly. I think my thoughts are coherent. <laughs> Maybe they're not. The listeners can judge that. Um, but I seem to be fine. And the reason I'm fine is because my heart is efficient. You know, it's adapted over time to exercise and it's really good at filling and putting out a decent amount of blood per beat. As a result, I'm able to maintain my cardiac output with a low resting heart rate. So that it's both it's both the outcome and a contributor to um the change in it's both an outcome of exercise but it's also a contributor to you know independently itself to lower cardiovascular disease risk long term so you've got a lower resting heart rate obviously there's a lot less you know stress on the system consistently over time but it's also part of the changes in the autonomic nervous system so it's related to the lower sympathetic tone and the higher parasympathetic or vagal tone and it's also related to the the next point which is heart rate variability so generally heart, a low resting heart rate occurs in the presence of elevated heart rate variability and heart rate variability is basically a, a metric that's used to try to quantify the contribution of the sympathetic and the parasympathetic nervous system to the regulation of the heart. So when someone has very high sympathetic tone, there's low heart rate variability. So you've got the sympathetic nervous system that's acting on the heart, telling it to beat, 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 beat. It's going to beat faster. And then it's going to beat um, at a more consistent basis. So it's constantly occurring. When someone has a higher vagal tone, higher parasympathetic tone, what they end up with is more variable heart rate. So it, it's almost like this kind of casual heart rate, like everything's fine here. You know, we'll throw a beat out there. We'll throw a beat out, beat out here, 45 beats per minute. They're not exactly at the same time, higher heart rate variability, lower resting heart rate. I kind of think of it in terms of like my, you know, just analogy of the heart is just really relaxed. It's just pretty casual in what it's doing. It's confident in its ability to get the blood flow out. So it's not worried about, you know, micromanaging every beat that it's the same interval. And it's not worried about having to excessively beat. So that's a heart that's very well adapted to exercise over time. So there are some of the changes in terms of the resting heart rate and the heart rate variability, which relate to the structure of the heart itself, but then the electrical system and the regulation of that by the nervous system. And all that leads to a heart that beats a little bit more variably and at a lower rate, importantly at rest. During exercise, we want to be able to make that switch. We want to be able to be in a position where we can rapidly increase our heart rate and do so to a very high level. And that's what you see in athletes. They've got this range of cardiac function where they can function well at 40 beats per minute and at 200 beats per minute. And that heart is able to handle that broad range. And all of that puts you in a position where you have lower risk of cardiovascular disease long-term, but also it puts you in a position where you're now, if you do have an event, let's say, like, let's say I have a heart attack, my heart is really well trained at all these different levels of function. It's going to be able to better um, deal with the metabolic stress of not having that oxygen because it's so well trained. 
and all of that comes together then to make me more protected if I was to have an event, let's say. Um, and it's ju just to, to note as well that heart rate variability itself, like it's not something you're going to you know measure in your GP practice, like the utility of it needs to be considered with all other things in mind. But it does seem like, you know, if you're getting an exercise stress test, let's see, let's say to look for um, cardiovascular disease and predict, predict risk that the addition of heart rate variability does have some prognostic utility there where someone has heart disease and they've got this extremely low heart rate variability that that puts them then at higher risk of um, cardiovascular events um, uh, over time. So it does help with risk stratification, uh, but it's very much part as well of the resting heart rate conversation. Like generally you're not going to see someone who has a very high resting heart rate of 90 and very high resting or heart rate variability as well, because they're, they're somewhat related in terms of their, where they're coming from. Yeah. And it's, it's just very straightforward. Like if you have longer time between your beats, your heartbeats, there's more, uh, you know, ability for the opposing sides of your nervous system to act on the heartbeat because you're like, it's basically this balancing act between the sympathetic and parasympathetic. So if you have longer distance between them in, in terms of actual time, obviously you're going to have more heart rate variability then as a result of that interplay. Whereas if you're just like consistently beating at a very fast rate, let's say again, like you said, 90, like there's less time between the beats for your nervous system to have that tug and pull with like, Oh, are we in a relaxed state? Oh, are we in a more stressed state? It's it just, you know, makes sense. Right. Um, so yeah, heart rate variability and resting heart rate exercise tends to improve those things. Now, obviously, certain modalities improve these more or less but and i think you would also agree with this ultimately i i just don't think it matters a huge amount like i would rather just see someone exercising we have a bit of a bias towards you know ensuring everyone does their resistance training because that's generally the thing that gets neglected the most and i would argue probably has the biggest return on investment just by virtue of building more muscle and strength and capacity and also just giving you a, a metabolic sink um but ideally we would also be doing some cardiovascular training and again i would argue and i, I think you would also argue after we've ticked the box with resistance training we're probably going to be looking for aerobic adaptations. We're Absolutely. probably going to be doing more aerobic training and aerobic training is probably the biggest bang for your book in terms of lowering your resting heart rate and also increasing your heart rate variability. So again, tick the boxes, which are two to three sessions for resistance training, if you're not doing it currently, um, and then start layering in more aerobic training. Would you agree with that? Absolutely agree with that. Fantastic. So I suppose one thing on that as well is that like it's, it's more relevant to the, the cardiac rehab discussion, but resistance training also plays a really important role in, in preserving one's quality of life in the presence of cardiovascular disease. Like if you've had a previous event, like generally what you see after that is that it's pretty much accelerates the process of sarcopenia, which we touched about, touched on a few episodes ago. So if you've, you know, if you're at the point now where you've got a slightly lower level of function, you've had an event, maybe you're a bit more careful day to day, you've decline in terms of your general well-being like generally what we see is that people lose muscle they lose function and you need to be you know have a good reserve firstly in terms of muscle that's previously been developed but then also you need to be building that back up as well so it's not just about what goes on within the heart which we've kind of touched on a few times it's also about your overall physical function and on that note then with reference to muscle and resistance training 
glycemic control or the control of your blood glucose and also insulin resistance or insulin sensitivity. And the overall, I guess, metabolic regulation is another very important target of exercise that reduces cardiovascular disease. So I think the best, I suppose, the extreme example of this is someone who has type 2 diabetes. The main cause of death in type 2 diabetes is cardiovascular disease. Glucose is incredibly toxic, believe it or not. You know, we, even though it's our main source of fuel, the vast majority of the time, um, and the body has a, a very intense need for a constant level of glucose. If it's taken to excess, it damages your blood vessels. So a high level of blood glucose is, is toxic to the walls of your blood vessels. And this then accelerates the development of atherosclerosis. So you've got this, these plaques that are developing in these areas of arterial damage, um, and it's just not a good environment. So if you've got dysregulated blood glucose, you're insulin resistant, um, you've got you know twice the normal range of blood glucose, or maybe every time you have a meal, it spikes loads and takes ages to come back down that's a poor prognostic factor for cardiovascular disease long-term. So exercise has a very important role in the prevention of diabetes for sure, but the prevention of dysregulated blood glucose generally, even if you're on that pre-diabetic spectrum. Um, so if you think of muscle as a sink, like Paddy said, that's quite helpful here because what muscle effectively does is, you know, it's contracting, contracting, contracting over and over again, and it uses up all that glucose that's there. And then what it needs to do is replenish its glucose stores in the form of muscle glycogen. So it acts as a sink, pulling all that glucose out of the blood and into your muscles. The more muscle you have, the more capacity you have to keep pulling that glucose out of your blood. The way that works most effectively is when you're very insulin sensitive. And what that means is that when insulin increases in response to an increase in blood glucose, that insulin is able to act on your muscle cells to say, hey, can we bring some glucose in and that we were able to bring loads in a, uh, in response in someone who has type two diabetes, they become resistant to the effects of insulin. So for X amount of insulin secretion, they're going to have less glucose getting into their cells. So what they need to do is increase the amount of insulin that, that they're releasing. And over time, they're no longer able to do that. They get dysfunction of the cells that release insulin. And this results in chronically high blood glucose because they're not able to keep up with that process anymore. So exercise is a very potent role in increasing blood glucose uptake and increasing insulin sensitivity. We know that both um, insulin and non-insulin dependent glucose uptake are improved in response to exercise. So there's a couple of different targets there, but overall your glycemic control is going to be improved even in healthy people without diabetes if they're exercising regularly. So it's very, very important. And that goes in terms of the muscle side of things, like I mentioned, but also your general daily activity. So even something as small as if you have a large meal, let's say today for lunch, and you go for a 10 minute walk, that massively improves your glycemic control um, after that meal. So um, exercise, glycemic control, very important, but the metabolic regulation more generally also. We already touched that on that to some extent when it comes to triglycerides, and that's uh, really important as well, because there is a whole fat or lipid related side to this where you know after a meal you've got this really complex interplay between the fat that's absorbed from your gut into chylomicrons the breakdown of those you've got chylomicron remnants you've got these vldl particles and all the different lipoproteins that are involved in shuttling fat around the body um, and overall that becomes more dysregulated than someone who doesn't exercise, someone who's very low level of fitness. If you've got a high level of fitness, that system functions a bit better, putting you at lower risk 
then of uh, cardiovascular disease and is intrinsically related with diet as well. Same as glycemic control. Obviously, diet plays a role in that, but exercise is a strong mediator in that uh, relationship too. Yeah, 100%. And while we're saying glycemic control, it's probably better to say like metabolic control. You know, it's just like it's improving metabolism. And as a result of that, it has benefits to this cardiovascular or cardiometabolic system, you know. Um, But just on one of those things that you said there, like it is important to understand that exercise in and of itself, forget about even the insulin stuff. Like you mentioned, there are non-insulin mediated or there is, I should say, there is non-insulin mediated glucose uptake by the cells in response to exercise. And this is really important uh, for multiple populations, but it also especially is important for people who have like type one diabetes and they're using exogenous insulin, because if you're exercising, it generally means that you can have a lower insulin intake as a result, or I should say intake is probably the wrong word to use, but you need to use less insulin or potentially, I should say, you need to use less insulin because you're actually able to clear some of that glucose by virtue of this non-insulin mediated glucose uptake so in diabetic populations both type 1 and type 2 diabetes exercise is really really beneficial and we know in those populations heart disease is something that we need to be looking at as a potential future risk so exercise is beneficial for the glucose or the glycemic control but like gary was saying there it's also beneficial for you know we'll call it the triacylglycerols or the triglycerides um it's also beneficial for making sure that they aren't too high, you know, and now obviously diet plays a role in that. And overall calorie intake plays a role in that. This is why we also see benefits or at least potential benefits to stuff like calorie restriction. Like that's just going to lower your glucose burden. That's just going to lower your triglyceride burden. Although you might actually see an increase in triglycerides in the bloodstream as a result of fat loss, because it's just being shuttled around a bit more, but that's a more transient adaptation. Um, so exercising is good for metabolic health. I don't think that uh, needs to be uh, overly explained. So exercise, good for metabolic health, good metabolic health associated with lower risk of heart disease. Pretty straightforward. Um, So Gary, before we get into like just talking about pre-event, because we'll finish up on that, where are we at with a baseline? Like we've talked about it previously, but just given what we talked about there, What's your recommendation as a starting point for exercise? Are you saying, okay, look, given all that we've discussed and all these different adaptations we could be looking at, where is our biggest return on investment? Are we doing more resistance training? Are we doing more aerobic training? Are we doing some anaerobic training? Are we like, what are we doing? Problem. Um, I feel like I repeat the exercise guidelines so many times these days. <laughs> I remember back when I first went into uh, <coughs> sports science my fresh 18 year old self i remember reading these exercise guidelines and being like god i'll never remember these god it's so complicated now i'm talking about them every week but anyway to general in general what you what you want to be doing is at least two sessions of resistance training per week where you're training all major muscle groups now i know that that sounds really vague to our audience because loads of you are lifting already and you're following these advanced programs so it sounds like uh, yeah. everyone's arguing around how many sets should i do and yeah. <laughs> which exercises are the best what rep range and all this stuff and it's like bro, most people just don't even go to the gym yeah most people like that's you to realize most people don't lift and that's just the norm and unfortunately it's particularly those that are most at risk of cardiovascular disease <laughs> so if i excuse me if i can get someone taking 30 minutes twice a week with 
five to 10 kg dumbbells in their sitting room doing some squat variations, some overhead presses, some push-ups. like that's unbelievable. And it will have a very potent effect. And you know that yourself, like when you think back to when you first started lifting, like think about the gains that you made in the first six months, you didn't really know what you were doing. Oh, you six were months, three years. Yeah. <laughs> like you were probably just, uh, you know, half assy. You didn't know what you were doing. Um, and that, that you got great gains, you know, you had fantastic gains, probably the best gains ever. And now you follow this micromanaged program six, seven days a week that, you know, is periodized and all this sort of stuff. And you probably haven't made any gains in two years <laughs> or 10. But, uh, yeah, like I'm like, oh, maybe I gained a hundred grams of muscle this year. Fantastic work. Great job. <laughs> yeah. Like that's like that hundred grams of muscle, let's say if Patty gained it, like that's not really having an effect on his cardiovascular disease risk at this point. Like the act of him exercising is, but it's not like when you get to 140 kg bench that like 150 is more beneficial now for your health. Like it, it's just not important at that point, but that early, those early gains are really, really important. And that's why I'm so happy with just saying, if you can do a resistance training session, twice a week and training all major muscle groups you're doing very well because you're going to have a decent level of function um, in terms of your muscle and strength so if we can get people doing that i'm all in now in terms of the aerobic side of things generally what we want is at least 150 minutes um, of moderate intensity aerobic exercise per week and moderate intensity aerobic exercise is exercise where you are short of breath um if you were to rate it out of 10 it'd be like a six to seven out of ten maybe um, you should be short of breath. You should be able to, you know, speak a sentence, uh, maybe maintain a light conversation, but you, you'll notice the shortness of breath creeping in. Like if someone really picked up the pace of the conversation, or you're trying to speak as quickly as I am on this podcast, you'd struggle to get your point across. So you should be, you know, fairly short of breath. And the reason that I give that again, a vague guideline is because for some of you, that's a brisk walk on the flat for others. It's a hill walk. For others, it's an intense cycling session, you know, uh, that's something that I actually come across with some of my more advanced trainees is that if I want them to do an hour at 140 beats per minute, which is pretty much in line with what I'm talking about here, they actually have to work pretty hard to get their heart rate up to that level because they're so fit, you know, so they might be looking like they're really getting after it on the bike. But you look over and they're just kind of short of breath. And that's just the result of fitness. It's the result of these muscular and cardiovascular adaptations over time. So that's why I hate an exercise bike. It's just it's just too hard to get your heart rate up. You need to get something where you're standing. <laughs> yeah, I know. I feel like I'm getting after it, even doing just light zone two stuff on the bike. But <laughs> anyway, so yeah, you want to be doing at least 150 minutes. And as we touched on the last episode, the benefits go far beyond that. Like if you can get 300, 500 <laughs> minutes, even you're still, you're still benefiting at that point. Um, but even at the basis there, like beyond the exercise guidelines themselves, what I always say is live an active lifestyle because people try to put exercise into all these different categories. Is it resistance? Is it aerobic? Is it flexibility, etc. But fundamentally, you just want to be an active person. Like you get over hikes the weekend, maybe you go surfing, maybe you go swimming, you go for walks on the beach. That, that activity is a very regular part of your life, that it's not something you always have to force. Um, and the more active you are generally, the less where you have to be out formal exercise. 
but formal exercise in the sense that you are actually getting that heart rate up more and that you are actually making your muscles work quite hard that is still really important but just further to that like you said earlier on just in this episode we were like oh like you know going for a walk after your meal like potentially improves your blood glucose well if you're basically always in a post-exercise state because you just exercise a couple of times per week whether it's four five ten twenty times per week you're constantly in a more beneficial environment for you know metabolism obviously by virtue of actually doing stuff and building your body that makes sense but if we're talking about blood glucose for example like you're basically always in an increased uh, state of glucose absorption and ability to use that glucose just by virtue of being in a post-exercise state you know so like you see this all the time where people are like i basically like train well personally i train like 10 times a week so i'm like i there there's no point throughout the day even if i eat a huge meal that my blood glucose is hugely elevated like i actually have relatively low blood glucose even though i'm like you know trying to gain weight and whenever i test my blood glucose it's actually always below like it's actually like 3.5 and stuff which is probably not great but like i'm always in a post-exercise state so of course my blood glucose is going to be lower it's going to be on the lower end because my muscles are just begging they're waiting for that blood glucose you know absolutely um sorry i got sidetracked there by a second watch for a second watching a video of the explosion on the crimean bridge but <laughs> I just that earlier anyway. <laughs> anyway um yeah so look lads i mean we really are a broken record but what we're trying to get the point across that we're trying to get the point across that exercise is just so incredibly important for all these cardiometabolic risk factors and we've touched on each of these independent risk factors and how exercise mediates um the improvement in risk but fundamentally the take-home is not the individual risk factors the take-home is that the overall risk of cardiovascular disease is potently reduced in response to exercise long-term exercise high volume exercise and also the adaptations that occur in response to that exercise so get to the gym now the final thing that we want to touch on and and this will this will lead us into a further conversation then in the next episode is if you're someone, or maybe you have a family member, like I've definitely got people in my own family who have had previous events or they've got symptoms of cardiovascular disease, is it still safe for this person to engage in an exercise program? And the answer is yes. Um, and there's some caveats here. So for example, if someone has had a previous heart attack, a myocardial infarction, Generally, what they will do if they're, you know, liaising with local services and depending on services in your area, they'll go to a cardiac rehab program. So you can enroll in a cardiac rehab program, which is an exercise program that you go to as an outpatient. Um, there's multiple sites in Ireland run by Medex and probably some other companies at this point. But um, you can go to a cardiac rehab program. There's multiple different phases. And it's graded exposure, much like we advise all the time, where you'll start at a much lower level of intensity and you'll gradually work your way up. And I've done some, some work as a physio, well, as a physio student, I should say, um, in my final year on these cardiac rehab programs. And we, you know, tried to put the initiative in there to actually introduce more resistance training. So we had people lifting weights um, and got a bit of pushback from people kind of higher up, but provided the evidence and said, look, this is evidence-based and people really enjoyed it. And it seems like over time, the, in Europe anyway, the European cardiac rehab guidelines do advise resistance training and that will be part of 
um, that program if you're on it. But in general, you do want to be getting back to exercise, even if you've had a heart attack, but that's a more specialized area that you'd initially at least want some guidance on from someone that has assessed you and seen you in person, which is why those cardiac rehab programs are so helpful. So if maybe if you're speaking to your cardiology consultant or something, that's something you, you could discuss if you haven't discussed it already. Um, but there are other, you know, conditions that might put you on that pathway as well. You know, if you had a previous heart surgery or other interventions too long to list, there's so many cardiac interventions these days, even um, through catheters and things like that. Um, but overall, regardless of the, you know, the event that's taken place or um, yeah, the event or insult that's taken place, you do still benefit from exercise and your risk of future events will be much better. Um, and also your quality of life after those events will be much better. Now there's other symptoms as well that might necessarily be classified as events, but might be symptoms of cardiovascular disease, which would be things like I mentioned intermittent claudication earlier, which is vascular disease. So if you've got peripheral artery disease and you're, you don't have that blood flow to the muscles, you get intermittent claudication, which is intermittent pains in the legs in response to exercise generally. And if you're exercising, that actually improves those symptoms um, and improves risk of further deterioration or events. Same thing goes for angina. When you've got you know chest pain in your heart that's aggravated by exercise, it'll generally alleviate at rest if it's stable. Exercise is going to improve that as well over time. So you build up your tolerance, you know, much like you would if your muscles were burning in response to exercise, it gets better over time. So in studies where they've taken people from these different populations, had them do exercise after their events or their symptoms presented, their future risk of events is reduced. So it is still really important that even if you're at that, what you might feel is like an end stage of the disease process where you now have established cardiovascular disease, even at that point, it's still a benefit for you to be exercising. Um, so if you're that person, I totally understand that you'd be apprehensive. A lot of people who've had events in particular would be apprehensive of <coughs> under stress, but you can get um, input from you know local services, whether it be physiotherapy or cardiac rehab programs that will hopefully get you on the right track there. Um, and there's definitely personal trainers as well, especially if you're out of the initial rehab phase that would be, you know, happy to work with you as well. I'm sure there is people all over the, the country who are working with clients who have had uh, previous events and have rehabbed and now are at a good state of fitness again. 100%. And <clears throat> remember that inactivity is probably the biggest risk factor. So yeah. ideally you're doing something, even if that is, you have to just ease into it and build it over time. That's what everyone has to do, you know? Um, but to kind of wrap this up, I suppose, can we uh, reverse heart disease with exercise? To some extent, in that it, the, the, the difficulty with the, the phrase reversal is that you'll basically never get a clear definition as to what it means to reverse heart disease. So what you can do is you can reverse damage and you can improve function without doubt in the heart in response to um, exercise. So for example, if you, if you had a, a heart disease that's been brewing and you've had damage to the muscles of your heart, for example, like that can improve, absolutely. Um, if you were to define heart disease as plaque within your arteries of the heart, can you reverse that? It might reduce slightly, but generally you're not reversing that like, to a large extent. Like if you've got 90% occlusion of a coronary artery, let's say, are you going to clear that up to 0%? No, absolutely not. So you can improve. You can make 
changes that would be classified as reversal, reversal to some extent. But the and the reason I'm hesitant about saying you can reverse it is because I don't want this happens sometimes. People will start an exercise program or start a nutrition program, they'll experience improvements, and they're like, "Oh, I'll stop taking my medication." I'm, I'm, <laughs> the exercise did the job. Um, so yeah, just be careful about that. But in general, yes, exercise can reverse some of those changes, some of those. Uh, the damage that's occurred within the heart um, and also improve symptoms. So for example, when people have um, angina, like we mentioned previously, you can reverse the severity of those symptoms uh, by exercise and nutrition as well can help. But uh, yes, so you can make steps in the direction of reversal, but you're not going to reverse the whole process because unfortunately, one of the biggest risk factors is age. <laughs> so um, as you age, you're inevitably going to have like the equivalent of gray hairs, but in every other organ in the body. So you're not going to expect an 85 year old, even if they train throughout their life to have the same cardiac function as someone who's 25, who maybe never trained because age is just a, a, obviously a very potent contributor to degenerative changes in any organ. Not me. I'm built different. Not me. Um, but yeah. So basically what you're saying is if we catch it early enough, we have a better chance of quote unquote reversing. And obviously if it's further along the progression, there's less quote unquote reversal that can even happen. Yeah. The earlier, the better, but late, but there's no such thing as too late. That's what I would say. That goes for both nutrition or nutrition, exercise, lifestyle in general, the earlier you get things in a good place, the better for your risk, but it's never, ever too late because even if it's just symptom management, <clears throat> that's still worth it. Even if it's just quality of life, that's still worth it. But very often it is a genuine reduction in the likelihood of you having an event and also the severity of that event. So, you, you know, you've got parents at home, they're in their sixties and seventies. Don't think, Oh, if only they had done this when they were young, it's, it's still not too late. And to be fair, very difficult to get parents to change their behavior. And I, I would even be of the opinion that you were better off, even if you're a personal trainer, send your parents to someone else that's what i try to do because they won't listen they think of me as a 12 year old the tick literally wiping your ass when you were yeah a exactly they know i'm i'm dumb in their eyes my my mom called me tick over the weekend she said you do all this studying but you're still stupid out <laughs> she's right as well she's not wrong <laughs> um so like your parents are always going to think of you like that and that's why i like to remind people when they try to run um behavior change with family members it's like you don't realize, like your parents don't think of you as a competent individual. <laughs> they think of you as a kid. Even your friends, like you know. yeah, even your friends, like yeah. Well, anyway, let's wrap this up, Gary. Where can yeah. people find us if they need help or they want more information about this stuff? Where where can they you know find us? So as always, guys, you can follow us on social media. Keep up with our free content. You can also subscribe to our newsletter and keep up with our free content. If you're looking with a deeper engagement with our services, we do have coaching spaces available. All coaches have coaching spaces available, including myself and Patty. So if you'd like to work with us, you can uh, see the information about that in the description box below and get involved. We're at that point in the year now where there'll suddenly be that turning point where people say, ah, sure, I'll start in January. You know, don't let that happen, right? If you can get your, you know, health, your health performance, body composition in a good place coming up to Christmas, you'll be in such a good place starting the new year. Um, because what a lot of people do, and this is actually something you see reflected in research as well, is that people actually gain a, a lot of weight in, during holiday periods 
and often don't lose it all. And that process of, you know, gaining weight and sometimes declines in fitness, but often weight gain is the thing that's well studied. It actually occurs intermittently at these holiday periods. So for example, you gain five kg, you lose three. You gain five kg, kg, you lose three. Gradually, your weight's increasing over time. So don't let the holidays ruin it for you. You can yeah, absolutely. Yeah, 100%. Like everyone always thinks that like you're in a calorie surplus the whole year. And that's the. Yeah, it's just this gradual little yeah, 20 small, extra calories. Small, yeah, exactly. It's like this small, small. That's to an extent that those happen. Yeah, of course. Yeah. But the vast majority of it seems to be these like. Know, Christmas period or holiday period or whatever and then you gain 10 kilos <laughs> and then it's like oh I struggled to get that off so I didn't get it all off and then the next holiday period runs around and the next one and the next one because that's the thing there's always something there's always an event there's always a weekend there's always this thing in work there's always this thing with your family with your education blah 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 like you're better off just learning how to deal with these things more effectively rather than just oh I'll start after that yeah and and you can see the thing is if you're in control now and you have the you know next couple of months um are going well for you in terms of your exercise and nutrition you can actually let loose a little bit enjoy yourself and it not be of such detriment because what you don't want is to come into january new year and be like disgusted at yourself because you're heavier than you've ever been you haven't trained in weeks whereas if you've just given yourself that extra kind of buffer because you lost a couple of kilos in the lead up to December. Your fitness was in a great place. Christmas week was like a planned deload for you because your training had been so productive previously. Then suddenly you're able to have a great Christmas period because you kind of feel like you've earned it. And that's not to say you need to earn Christmas, but there is a truth there to the fact that if you're restricting a little, even a little bit, you know, you're just watching your diet a bit more, you're watching your exercise a bit more, you will have a better holiday period. Uh, so work with us. That's the answer to your question. If you're a coach and you'd like to uh, get certified in uh, as a nutritionist, as a nutrition coach, if you will, but nutritionist is the term that we use, you can sign up for our nutrition course. So get certified with triage, get expertise in helping clients with their nutrition. And, you know, that might be of relevance again, coming up to the end of the year and into the new year. Maybe you're a personal trainer who wants to move into helping people more with their nutrition. You've kind of got this vague idea that people need to change their calorie intake, but you don't really know how to coach nutrition. Sign up for the course and get that in order for the new year. Um, other things, what else do we do? We have a podcast. You may have noticed you can leave a rating and review if you'd like, and you can share it in your story. We always appreciate that. Ah, that's about everything. Yeah, that's pretty much everything. I don't have anything else to say. So uh, I suppose we'll see everyone in the next episode, or at least they'll see us if they're watching it and they'll hear us if they're listening it. So see you later, guys.